from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am Not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so, so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. Even if it's just a buck, it would help me reach my goal of being able to bring you more content with more visuals and perhaps interviews and so on. So keep that in mind. Today's podcast, which was again voted for by patrons, and it will be on Christine Chubbuck. Christine was born on August 24th, 1944 in Hudson, Ohio. Now, since we've discussed the history of the world in the mid-1940s so many times, and especially as of late, most all of it revolving around World War II, I'm actually going to skip the history portion just for this episode. Her parents were George Chubbuck and Margretha, or Peg, which I will call her Davis Chubbuck. A few generations of George's past family also hailed from Ohio, but before that, they had hailed from Massachusetts. Her mother's recent past family had also hailed from Ohio, so locals for a few generations at least. George married Peg in December of 1940. George was a veteran of World War II. He was a second lieutenant. The couple had their first child, Timothy, in 1942. Christine would be born two years later than her younger brother, Greg, a couple of years after her. So after the war, George went to work as a, quote, high-end automotive and manufacturing industry salesperson, and Peg was a stay-at-home mother. Sources state that the family was quite comfortable financially, perhaps upper middle class. I don't know that they were like filthy rich. Christine was an intelligent young child. That was quite apparent. Her early childhood was normal. Her brothers adored her, as did her parents. I could find no instances where anything in particular happened that was negative. The source material all stated that it became apparent something was different about her at around the age of 10. It was at this point that she began to voice concerns about not being able to fit in with her peers. So it started at about 10 years old. From an interview with People magazine, her younger brother, Greg, stated that his older brother, Tim, had taken him aside when they were kids and told him their time with Chrissy, as they called her, would be short-lived. He said, quote, We have to hug Chrissy extra hard because we aren't going to have her very long. He was 12 and I was 8, this is what Greg recalled, and in the back of our minds, we always knew that our time with her was not going to be infinite. End quote. 
So Christine attended the private Laurel School for Girls in Shaker Heights, established in 1896. Their official website boasts, quote, From 1896, when Laurel's founder, Jenny Prentice, embraced the need for superior education for girls to our ongoing commitment to a rigorous college preparatory program comprising a research-based curriculum to becoming a national leader in girls' development, our illustrious past demonstrates a tradition of innovation, end quote. And Christine would have attended this school in the early 1950s, but in today's money, okay, the costs are very expensive. From, I looked up the cost for this actual school. So from kindergarten through fifth grade for the current school year as of this recording in 2023 is between $23,500 and $31,975. And then from sixth grade through high school graduation, the cost is between $33,200 and $38,650 per year folks. That's, that's per year. So without going into all of that math, it's pretty easy to see that her parents paid for the best education that they could for their little girl, you know, more power to them. So as she grew into her teens, she began suffering from fairly intense mood swings. At school, those sources said she did this jokingly. She formed a school club called, quote, the Dateless Wonder Club. Her brother, Greg, stated that from the time she was about 13 years old, she had grown into or was blossoming into this beautiful young teen. And as she matured, she would turn heads in every room she entered, but no one seemed to go out of their way to approach her. Now, Peg, her mother, stated, quote, she just couldn't connect with people. Christine herself would tell her mother those exact words as she would worry and complain over her lack of friendships and romantic relationships. Christine would say, quote, how many of us here just can't connect with people? She had a difficult time maintaining close friendships or having those first few kind of innocent boyfriends. But now I want to explore this. So I believe that the reasons are possibly twofold, just in my own opinion. One, she was just a, an absolute gorgeous young lady, and perhaps boys were intimidated by this, thinking she'd never go out with them because this was a very real scenario. And two, she went to a private all-girls school. There were no male peers at this school, so her entire childhood and teenage years, up until she's basically legally an adult, other than her brothers or father, she uh, would have very limited exposure to boys and might not have developed that natural instinct to read body language and vocal cues from boys. Of course, if she were autistic, that would be an issue anyway, but let's not get off topic. An article written by Arlen Harris for the Irish Times stated, quote, Psychologists say girls in single-sex schools are more likely to suffer from social or emotional problems. Psychologists and educationalists are now asking whether single-sex schools are resulting in increased pressure on girls and contributing to a rise in social and emotional problems. A recent report canvassed the views of more than 3,200 young people aged between 12 and 17 on their attitudes to school. 
It found that girls in single-sex schools had higher levels of exam stress compared to boys. Stella O'Malley, the psychotherapist and author of Bully Proof Kids, agrees and says girls in particular may suffer emotionally and socially in single-sex schools for a range of reasons. I believe that there is more pressure to perform socially for girls in single-sex schools, she says. Although they may do better academically in single-sex schools, what they lose on those swings they gain on the roundabouts. As the pressure to perform socially can be too intense for many girls, and so they ultimately end up underperforming in all spheres. So psychologist Oliver James identified high-performing 15-year-old girls as the unhappiest group of people in England or Ireland. Oliver said, quote, These girls tend to be perfectionists and very self-motivated. When their peers are similarly driven, intense competition and rivalry might mean that the results are impressive, but the implications for long-term mental health issues often significantly reduce the potential for them to lead successful and satisfying lives, end quote. Wow. Child psychologist Peter Maxwell says socializing with the opposite gender is an important aspect of education. Boys and girls need to see one another as equals and to learn to cope with all of the challenges of sharing study and work spaces. Single-sex schools might not offer that opportunity by creating a divide that doesn't exist in society. If a child does attend a single-sex school, I think it would be wise of their parents to offer them opportunities to have friendships and shared interests in a mixed gender setting so that they grow to be comfortable with the real-world situation of males and females working and living alongside one another with mutual respect and equality in relationships. So just as racial segregation promoted racism, Schools segregated by sex promote sexism. According to Science Daily, a study conducted in 2010 by Professor of Psychology, Human Development, and Family Studies, Lynn S. Leiben, examined classrooms segregated by sex and found signs of sexism in students. She concluded, quote, The choice to fight sexism by changing co-educational practices or segregating by gender has parallels to the fight against racism, end quote. When boys and girls are taught under separate roofs, they often wrongly conclude that one gender is better than the other. And while many people go to private schools that are all one sex and go on to live fantastic lives, I believe, due to her already kind of developing mental health issues or depression, her being segregated from the rest of the educational world with boys contributed at least to her awkwardness around boys and people in general. I'm not saying it's a cause, I'm saying it contributed. So, when Christine was 16 years old, as she became involved in competitive kayaking, she met and began dating 23-year-old Dave. He too was an avid kayaker and they became close quickly but it wasn't long before he would be tragically killed in a horrible car accident. She would always say that Dave was the love of her life and she never got over this loss. After graduating high school, she went on to attend Miami University in Oxford, Ohio for one year majoring in theater arts. 
Then she attended Endicott College in Beverly, Massachusetts, before earning a degree in broadcasting at Boston University in 1965. Now, according to her younger brother, again, Greg, when Christine was 21 years old, she did begin briefly dating a man who was 30. But George, her father, did not approve of her dating this older man, who also followed a different religion than what the family followed. He was Jewish. I don't think the dad was anti-Semitic. I just think he didn't, he wanted his daughter to stay in the Catholic, whatever it was. But the point is, the father put an end to the relationship. Sources say that after this, she never went on to date another man. So after her graduation from Boston University, Christine went on to work for WVIZ in Cleveland, Ohio. She worked there for about a year before moving to New York, where she attended a summer workshop in radio and television at New York University in 1967. In 1968, Christine worked for a few months for public television stations in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Canton, Ohio. She worked as an assistant producer for two local shows, Women's World and Keys to the City. Now, during all of this, her depression was already quite intense. She told many self-deprecating jokes about her lack of love life and friends. It was said that she was a very giving young lady. Greg, her brother, said, quote, There was a haunting melody in Chris. She gave so many presents, spent so much money, not to buy their friendship, but because she wanted to. It's almost like her life was a little out of gear with other people. End quote. So Greg also noted that his sister was, quote, emotionally flawed in many ways and had been ever since she was a child. He said that she suffered from what he believed to be bipolar disorder, and despite their parents spending nearly $1 million over the course of 20 years, they could never find a treatment that would help her find peace. So this is a young woman who has been made aware of her mental health struggles most all of her life since childhood, and her parents were aware and actively sought out help for her, and we love to hear it. In 1969, her mother divorced her father, though I wasn't immediately able to find the reason why. But divorce they did. Now, at this point, Christine had moved down to Florida and was living in the family's vacation home in southern Florida. And I find it important to share that it was later discovered that she had painted and decorated her room similarly to how a very young teenager or a tween would. It's food for thought. It's, it's sort of giving, you know, stunted emotional or maturity growth because of the severe depressive symptoms. But I don't know, you know, I don't know. You let me know. So her mother and Greg moved into the house with her due to the divorce. And Christine's grandparents happened to live right across the street. It was said in all sources that she was extremely close with her grandparents, and she called her mother and Greg her best friends. She would then spend four years working as a hospital computer operator and two years with a cable television firm in Florida. And then she finally landed a job as a reporter, then moving on to host at WXLT in Sarasota, Florida. Greg said it was her show. It was one person doing all of it with very low pay. 
end quote. And everyone in the family went out of their way to help Christine with her television career. Her mother even paid for designer dresses to be made to make sure that she looked good on air. And after she became a host, her grandparents would watch every segment she was in faithfully. They did not miss them. The entire family was so very proud of Christine. She got a lot of positive feedback, but Christine was still suffering unimaginably with her mental health. Now, most of us are intimately familiar with depression. I know I am because I suffer from it intensely, but for those who have never experienced it, it's not really the persistent sadness that is displayed. According to Medical News Today, quote, Depression is a serious mental illness that can cause long-lasting and severe feelings of sadness and hopelessness, as well as a loss of interest in activities. It can affect a person's quality of life and relationships. Some people with depression may experience appetite changes and sleep problems. Other aspects of depression may bring on painful physical symptoms such as headaches. End quote. The symptoms and causes of depression can vary widely from person to person. For me personally, I lose all motivation to complete any tasks. I feel completely empty, my consciousness or my soul. The entity that is housed within this vessel, this very heavy meat suit, exists within the weight and gravity of it. I feel empty and hollow and unimportant. And, of course, the feeling of being an absolute burden to your loved ones and friends. And it's not that I feel supremely sad, per se. It's more just hollow and empty and heavy from the weight. That's how I perceive things, also in very slow motion. It takes me a moment to answer people, and I speak slower and more monotone. I guess you could say mine hints at shades of catatonia, but that's not relevant to this current story. But it is that deep, deep depression that she had that is something that I am very intimately aware of. But the medical community's consensus of symptoms include lessened or no pleasure or joy in life. Concentration or focus becomes harder. Everything feels hopeless. Self-esteem is often absent. Sleeping difficulties. Energy levels are low or non-existent and they may not want to eat or taste food, anything different, they might even feel physical pain. And those that do not or have never experienced depression, you can't just sort of think positively or just cheer up and then it just magically goes away because this is not how it works. And saying that to a depressed, like a clinically depressed person just makes it worse because they already feel that they are a burden. So there you go. Now, during her time working as a hospital computer operator, she attempted to unalive herself. She took a purposeful overdose of drugs, though I couldn't find out what drug it was, and she would often make references to this incident to her family. She spoke openly about it. Suffice to say that she was in absolute open communication with her family regarding her struggles with mental illness. But nonetheless, she was the host of a talk show called Suncoast Digest, and that aired at 9 a.m. each day. I'm, however, not sure if that means every weekend day as well. My guess would be no, but I could be wrong. On the show, she discussed local community news, and then in her spare time, when she wasn't working, it was said that she performed puppet shows for children with developmental disabilities. 
So there was a sense of charity there and an especially warm heart with regards to children. And we love to hear that too. But for the most part, working as the host, she discussed local organizations that were involved in the fight against drug addiction and other issues plaguing the local community. Now, she loved this job. She was even nominated for an award for forestry and conservation for her dedication to bringing to light issues of interest to the community. And after her brush with death from overdose, she began regularly attending therapy sessions. And a common theme that continually came up for her was her lack of romantic relationships. She regularly used her lack of a love life to sort of feed her sense of failure. And she talked very negatively about herself. Back in the early 70s, things were progressing for women, but most still felt the social stigma of, you know, quote, you need to find a mate and you need to get married and you need to have babies and you need to settle down, you know, that. And while it is apparent that she wanted that for herself, just as much as I'm sure her family wanted that for her, the social stigma would also be adding fuel to that fire. She felt that she wasn't good enough and she doubted herself as beautiful and as intelligent as she was. At work, Christine was well-respected for both her fantastic journalism skills and her unconventional personality. Her former news director, Gordon Galbraith, described her sense of humor as, quote, bizarre, recalling that she once referred to herself as pristine buttocks as a way of poking fun at her own virginity instead of Christine Chubbuck's pristine buttocks. I think it's kind of funny, but we'll move on. Now, it was said that Christine developed a nearly all-consuming crush on a co-worker, George Peter Ryan, but unfortunately, he did not harbor the same feelings for her. One story goes that, in an effort to get him to notice her as more than just a co-worker, she baked him a cake for his birthday. But you see, he was already involved with the sports reporter, Andrea Kirby. Now... Andrea and Christine had sparked up a friendship of sorts, which made Christine quite happy. But Andrea wound up moving away to work at another station, and this saddened Christine quite a bit as well. Yet again, in her eyes, a failed friendship. According to the Dr. Grande, the station she worked at was very small and underfunded, so to speak. The reporters were given Polaroid cameras and told to go find stories. The station just didn't have much up-to-date technology, and the morning show didn't have a ton of viewers, just 500 or so, but remember that her grandparents proudly watched her every morning, and the station, of course, wanted to grow its audience, which I know about intimately, so they did apply some pressure to the reporters to go find big stories to kind of sensationalize, and again, According to Dr. Grande, the station's motto became, quote, if it bleeds, it leads. Also around this time, Christine's younger brother Greg moved out of the cottage and her older brother Timothy moved in, but that was completely fine. She loved Timothy with her whole self as well. And in 1973, though I couldn't seem to find her official diagnosis, she had to have surgery to remove one of her ovaries. The doctor told her that she had only a couple to three years left to get pregnant and have children before she would be unable to conceive at all. 
And this would, as anyone can imagine, put a tremendous amount of pressure and stress on her. In June of 1974, Christine's father, George, got remarried to a woman named Teresa. In very early July the next month, Christine went out and bought a small handgun. She confessed to Greg that she was feeling suicidal, but of course didn't mention the gun. Christine had always been quite open and brutally honest, as I've said, with her family about her mental health struggles. Unbeknownst to her family, she had abruptly stopped her therapy sessions a few weeks prior to her confession to Greg. Christine then told the night news editor, Rob Smith, that she had bought a gun and went on to joke about killing herself on air. Smith later stated that he did not respond to what he thought was Christine's already well-known, quote, sick attempt at humor and changed the subject. One must remember that I'm sure her co-workers were not really fully aware of her struggles. I mean, her mother certainly didn't want to alert anyone because she was afraid that her daughter would get fired and her daughter loved that job. I mean, you would think that would be the positive little light beam in her otherwise dark world. So sometime around the 12th or the 13th of July, which was a weekend in 1974 because I looked it up, it was a weekend, Christine threw a small party at her house. The people that came, mostly co-workers, were surprised at her completely different personality and mood that night. Craig Sager, who was the sports reporter at the station, stated, quote, she was having a great time. It was like, oh my God, this is such a different side to her. That was her going away party, and it was her chance to say goodbye to everyone. But of course, we didn't realize it at the time. It was just so shocking. End quote. On Sunday, July 14th, Christine visited her brother Greg and played with the puppets she kept for her work with the children at the hospital with his young daughter. All seemed well. She also knew that her beloved grandfather had a doctor's appointment the next day, and her grandmother was driving him there, and therefore they would not actually be watching her show Monday morning. According to an article from the website, All That's Interesting, on Monday, July 15, 1974, Christine's mother, Peg, stated that her daughter had been in a great mood. Christine arrived at work around 9 a.m., half an hour before Suncoast Digest was set to go live. According to the Washington Post, she was in extraordinarily good spirits that morning. At the studio, she greeted her co-workers and then excused herself so that she could write her script for the morning's newscast. This was a little unusual, though. Chubbuck's typical routine was much more relaxed and consisted of a relatively informal talk segment with her guests. Up until that day, she had never started the program with a newscast. Despite this irregularity, though, no one doubted her decision. She was, after all, a well-respected professional. She informed the control room that she wanted to use pre-taped footage of a shootout that had occurred over the weekend, wrote out a 10-minute script on a typewriter, sat down at the anchor desk, and prepared for her segment. And during the first few minutes of her morning broadcast, she talked about national news stories, as well as a shooting that had occurred the day before. Only the video portion of the story got jammed and was otherwise unusable. So Christine began making a statement. Memorial Hospital. In keeping with the 
WXLT practice of presenting the most immediate and complete reports of local blood and guts news, TV40 presents what is believed to be a television first. In living color, exclusive coverage of an attempted suicide. She had had her normal puppet bag with her on the floor off camera. She had reached into the bag, pulled out the gun, placed it behind her ear, and pulled the trigger. Live, on television, hundreds, if not thousands of people watched her do this live on the air, on their televisions. She immediately slumped forward before her body slid off of the chair and she went to the floor. The station cut to black immediately, but it was too late. This had been witnessed by everyone watching. She was immediately taken to Sarasota Memorial Hospital. After the shooting, the news director found the papers on the desk that she had been reading, which contained a complete script of her program, including not only the shooting, but also a third-person account to be read by whichever staff member took over the broadcast after the incident. He said her script called for her condition to be listed as, quote, critical. Can you imagine finding that? 29-year-old Christine was pronounced dead 14 hours later. She was ultimately cremated and her ashes scattered on a beach. It was said that a bit of over 100 people showed up to her funeral of sorts. Now, her older brother, Timothy, had no spouse or children listed, and he himself died in 1987 at the age of 45 from what sources stated was AIDS but I'm not 100% certain about that. I also found on a forum that younger brother Greg was indicted on grand larceny charges for theft, which just sounds insane, but the value wouldn't be above $1,000. And then they went on to say the father, George, was married a few times after his first divorce, so a little bit of family drama around. A commenter on this thread, who I'll leave anonymous, had this to say about Christine. My theory, which is just speculation on my part, is that she was living with her mom and the mom was putting pressure on Christine to get married for a variety of reasons, including having an unusual, unpleasant personality, not being attracted, attractive to anyone, not wanting to get married, or perhaps even confusion about her own sexual orientation. Christine felt like a failure. Keep in mind, this was 1973, and the norm for women was to get married and have kids. If Christine's mother was anything like my mother, Christine was belittled for not being married, and after a while, Christine started buying into her mother's belief system. Convinced she was a failure, Christine just wanted peace from the voices in her head, telling her what a loser she was. Now, I read this and thought it maybe plausible. It isn't a stretch that she was being made to feel, if not outright, then perhaps just by insinuation, that she was an old maid, a spinster. But in the 70s, it was the social norm to be married, at the very least at 20 years old. If not already a mother to one child, be planning for the first child, was expected. Her self-deprecating comments and low self-esteem were a bit of a turnoff for her peers, but that's just who she was. She had a darker sense of humor, and it wasn't usually well-received. I also am intimately aware of this for my own personality and social dealings. 
I understand Christine on a very personal level. Now, somehow I managed to get the things that she stated she wanted and was missing. But that feeling of being unable to connect with people on any real level is something I understand intimately. All of the small handful of people I consider my closest friends exist in the virtual. They are profile pictures with words typed out on a black screen. Occasionally, I'll get a voice message from one of them, and it's cool to hear their actual speaking voice. But close friends in real life? Not not really, no. But I am also very aware that I sort of give off a don't-bother-me vibe, so I have to just accept that I'm strange. My humor is entirely too dark, and I'm not most people's cup of tea. I get it. I feel like I understand her sense of hopelessness. And she was suffering with her depression back before we, the depressed of the current world, sort of made that unspoken rule of never giving in and unaliving ourselves as a beacon of hope for the rest who suffer with us. If his death story is to be believed, Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park hurt us all so badly because he knew that unspoken rule and he gave in anyway. Chris Cornell and so very many others and... Christine wanting the mental torment and torture to end is very familiar, but I don't feel she actually wanted to, you know, cease living. The dark blanket of depression is a very tough battle and one gets desperate for relief. Christine's mood improving drastically in the days before she took her own life is not uncommon. According to the National Library of Medicine, National Center for Biotechnology Information, who posted an article titled, Are Patients with Depression at Heightened Risk of Suicide as They Begin to Recover? This article showed, It has been a long taught and believed that patients with depression and suicidal tendencies are at heightened risk of suicide as they begin to recover and their energy and motivation return. What is the data behind this enduring belief? The idea that patients with depression and suicidal tendencies are at heightened risk of suicide as they begin to recover from depression is widely taught and believed. It is enshrined, among other places, in the American Psychiatric Association's practice guideline for the assessment and treatment of patients with suicidal behaviors. According to the guideline, clinical observations suggest that there may be an early increase in suicide risk as depressive symptoms begin to lift, but before they are fully resolved. The increased energy and motivation that come with depression relief, so the thinking goes, increase the likelihood that patients will act on their suicidal impulses. This idea has been around for a long time. Benjamin Rush, in his 1812 textbook, Medical Inquiries and Observations Upon the Diseases of the Mind, cautioned that, Quote, we should be careful between a return of reason and a certain cunning, which enables mad people to talk and behave correctly for a short time and thereby to deceive their attendants so as to obtain a premature discharge from their place of confinement. End quote. Beautiful. In the same book, he noted that three instances of suicide have occurred in patients soon after they left the Pennsylvania hospital and while they were receiving the congratulations of their friends upon their recovery. So, this incredibly credible source, this National Library of Medicine, like, 
so many people use this, this is a very credible source, says, quote, beyond the clinical observation that some patients with depression who commit suicide do so as they begin to recover, and the impression of some influential clinicians at the time of early recovery is one heightened risk of suicide. There is no data that tracks suicide in relation to symptoms. Searched databases available through Ovid, Medline, and PsychInfo from their start dates, 1950 and 1806 respectively, to the present for the terms depression and suicide, suicide during recovery from depression, and suicidality as patients are recovering from depression, although no studies directly evaluated suicide in relation to stage of depressive illness or its symptoms, several studies provide data bearing indirectly on this matter. So basically they're saying that there's just not data. So I know guys, I know, listen, we learned that together because in the over 30 years I've been studying psychology and criminology, all of that, I always read that often there was that sense of relief once a depressed person officially decides to take their own life and that explains the mood lift. I think it's valid. I'm going to continue to think that that's valid. If the written and case research data doesn't prove it, the statistics really don't lie. As it is, depression skews one's thinking and twists irrational things into being perceived as rational. Some people with depression may not experience the same symptoms as others, and that's okay. Because when I envision these concepts in my own kind of weird brain, I can clearly see that all of these identified disorders and mental illnesses exist on a spectrum and often overlap with other things. Lots of crossover. And Christine's brother stated she was bipolar, and perhaps she was. We weren't left with real detailed information on how she spent her everyday typical time, so I don't want to agree with this statement, but I will not discount it. The point is, is that, you know, most of us with depression are cognizant enough, though barely, to know what's happening and hang on to the idea that it will subside. When I am not having a low, as I call it, I make a point to stop and recognize when I'm having a good day. I say it out loud so my thinking self hears the audio. You know, I say like, today is a good day. I have nothing to worry about today. I feel good, feel loved. I'm very thankful. Then when I'm in the depths of hell, right, I have that tiny bit in the well from which to draw to keep me going. Knowing that at least a very small few friends and loved ones would actually be sad if I departed, if you will, is also a major deterrent. So for the possibility of sounding like a lunatic with all of that personal crap I just shared, sorry, by the way, know this, I may not have time to have a full conversation with all of you on various platforms. I do try to make sure you get at least a heart or a like. I publish comments straight to Spotify. I want all of you to feel like I see you because I don't want any of you to feel alone. You know, maybe I can't talk you through a crisis, but know that I do care. I actually really do. I'm going to get choked up, so we'll leave it at that. So run, walk, crawl, whatever you have to do to get through it. Just come out the other side, okay? Promise me. Thanks, guys, for listening. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. 
and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 